Good morning again, Redeemer family. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be camping out uh, in verses 10 through 17. I was kind of torn on how to divide this section up. Uh, we could have certainly dealt with 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 10, all the way through at least chapter 2, verse 5, uh, but felt like, man, there's enough here for us to kind of lock in on this morning. When you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, say amen. All right, here we go. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me ultimately to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Amen. Let's pray together. Uh, dear Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, other idols that are made by men must be carried along. They have no mouths. They have no hands. They have no eyes. They are impotent and powerless, and yet you're different. You give life, and you speak, and you see, and you save, and you sanctify, and you pursue, and you're ours. And so, Lord, I do pray in this uh, next moment in our service that you would indeed throw your weight around, that you would uh, capture our affections and attention, and that you would uh, do work in us and on us. Only you, Lord, can save the lost and humble the prideful, and convict those who need conviction, and restore those who are downcast, and mature us where we are often, Lord, like children. And so, Father, grow us in the faith. Do this for your glory and for the promises you made to King Jesus, I pray. Amen. I've entitled our time this morning, The Cross Unites a Divided Church. Have you ever experienced what some might call a good problem? Maybe, maybe you had to renovate a space in your house, and if you've ever done any renovation, you know that they're nightmares. Uh, we, we did one, and you end up spending more money. They take longer than you thought, and there's always something that is unexpected. We thought we would have an open floor plan where you could walk into one room and see straight to our kitchen. That was the plan until our contractor got to tearing down walls. And all of a sudden he says, brother, there is a main drain line coming from your upstairs bathroom down right through this wall. And we can go about this two ways. You can spend eight grand and we can reroute this main drain line through another wall or I can box it in. I'm like, bro, what you mean box it in? Yeah, I can put what looks like a support beam, uh, but it's not a support beam. It's just a wrapped pipe. And I said, you definitely got to do what's cheaper. (laughs) 
And so if you come to our house, there's a, there's a beam, and it's not a real beam. It's a pipe that runs down it. But suppose you have to renovate, and, and it, it's awful. More money, drywall everywhere, someone in your house every day. It's a problem, but what if I told you the reason you're renovating is because you had a miracle baby or an adoption came through that you were not planning on. And all of a sudden, that problem is now a good problem. Martin Lloyd-Jones views the problems that we encounter in 1 Corinthians as good problems. And I know at first glance you're thinking, no way, bro. No way a man sleeping with his stepmother is a good thing. No way prostitution and being delivered from uh, same-sex attraction. No way saints suing one another. No way getting drunk at a communion meal. That, That can't be good. But think about the good side. The reason these problems are good, according to Martin Lloyd-Jones, is because the gospel is doing what the gospel does. It draws people from all backgrounds and all walks of life. You wouldn't have to rebuke someone from getting drunk in the church if the gospel didn't save drunks. You wouldn't have to rebuke someone for sexual sin if the gospel didn't really save sexually broken people. You wouldn't have to rebuke someone for taking someone to court if the gospel didn't save folks trigger happy to sue each other. In other words, these are good problems because the gospel really does go into a sinful city and it really does rescue all of those types of people. And so when you read 1 Corinthians, we have to read it through that lens that we could either want what Martin, Luther, what Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm about to say Martin Luther King, y'all forgive me. <laughs> Where Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you can have dying problem churches. You know what dying church problems are? People don't care about what songs you sing. They don't care about the theology of the preachers. What you say is true and what you say is true. They don't care about decisions being made. They don't care about growing in grace. They don't care about one another. They are disjointed, passionless, and indifferent. And that's a different set of problems. And they don't give, right? He's saying those are dying church problems. Which kind of problems do you want in the church? You want dying church problems? Or do you want living church problems? And I know some of the problems in Corinth will make you pull out your hair, make you grieve, shed tears. But the gospel really is reaching broken people. And that's the way I want us to think about all of our passages in 1 Corinthians. It is precisely because the gospel is reaching Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, adulterers, sex addicts, power addicts, alcoholics, that this conflict happens in the church. It's serious, but it's the sign of a living church. The gospel is doing what? the gospel does. And so I want us to think about this under three headings, a serious problem, then we'll look at the source of the problem, and then we'll look at the solution to the problem. 
What, what, what's the serious problem? We see it in the text that the church of Corinth is divided. Paul writes at the opening sentence that I want you all to agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united and in the same mind and the same judgment. On the surface, this may appear that he wants them to be the same in every way. You can't disagree about a thing. You can't be different about a thing. There must not be diversity. He wants what some would call uniformity. But that's the farthest from the truth. It contradicts the letter. Paul doesn't want everybody to be married and everybody to be single. He doesn't want everybody to have the same gift. He doesn't want everybody to view meat in the temple the same way. The apostle gives freedom under the banner of love in the book. And so he can't be saying, I want you all to dress the same way, vote the same way, educate your children the same way, spend your money the same way, wear the same clothes, like the same things, have the same hobbies. You know, that flies in the face of what I'm looking at right now. I'm looking at men and I'm looking at women. I'm looking at gray hairs and I'm looking at balding people, right? I'm looking at single people and I'm looking at married people. I'm looking at people with locks and people with straight hair. I'm looking at people from Ethiopia, right? And people from Mississippi. I'm looking at people, if we all held our handprints up, what you're going to see is that not one single person in this room has the same fingerprint or personality. And so why do we think that when Paul says, I want you to agree and be the same and be united, that what he has in mind is uniformity? He does not. There is beautiful diversity in creation that we ought to be celebrating. So Paul isn't saying every Christian has to view every single thing the same. You can never have conflict. That is not what he's saying. So my son is in junior high and my daughter is in high school. And here's what's different when we drop them both off. When I take my son to Northwest, all the kids are uniform. They got on navy blue pants or khaki pants, a navy blue shirt or a white shirt. I mean, like, there is no variety. But when I take my daughter to Murrah, they're not in uniform. They're, they don't have to wear uniforms. They get to dress themselves. They get to wear jeans and skirts and, and, and hoodies like when it's 100 degrees outside. I'm like, what, what are you doing? We think that what Paul is after is middle school dress code. He's not. He's after high school dress code. What he's calling out is they're quarreling and they're fighting and they're boasting and they're making much of inferior things in people. Paul even says that, bro, y'all are even making much of who baptized y'all. So I actually think we can't use verse 14 to weaken baptism where Paul says, I thank God I baptized none of you except Christmas and Gaius. So that none of you may, be, may say that you were baptized in my name for Christ did not send me to baptize. Don't, don't read that as baptism as being less important. 
read that through their lens, they are actually attaching an importance to who administered the water. And what they're saying is, I follow Paul. Paul baptized me. And Paul is like, man, deflate your chest. Who is Paul? Did Paul save you? Did Paul die for you? And what they're doing in the church is dividing along leaders they love. And so you got a camp. You got a Paul camp. I follow Paul. And I follow Apollos. And I follow Cephas. And we're the holy ones. We follow Christ. Not, not any of those other three dudes. And Paul says, each of you are doing that. Look at it, what it says. For it has been reported to me that there was quarreling. Look at verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you. So is this hyperbole? Or had each of the Corinthian Christians began to identify with one of their leaders? So what's up with the people who say we love Paul? Paul in 1 Corinthians is going to say that I planted and Apollos did what? Watered. He says, I like a master builder laid the foundation and somebody else is building on the foundation. But the foundation I laid was Christ. And so some in Corinth are saying, we follow Paul. We are team Paul. Ain't nobody like Paul. Paul got them gifts. Look, when I was with RUF, one of the, the things we would do through assessment is would wrestle with, is this person a gatherer or are they someone who comes in when there is a group and can shepherd the group? And so what RUF was trying to do was assess gifts. Can somebody parachute down on a campus with no RUF ever and will people, will students, will donors get excited and get behind them and draw near? Or is this person better suited to go where there is a work, where there is a history? They may not have the gathering gifts, but man, they are sure going to pastor who shows up. Paul is over here. He shows up in Corinth and stays 18 months, and the church is just burst. And then he goes on somewhere else, and those people who came under him are saying, no, y'all bet not forget about the founder. We are team Paul. Okay, well, who is Apollos? If you go back and listen to the sermon I preached on November 21st, 2021, I told you some of the threats. I know. I, I only did this because I, I looked in my little my file to see when did I talk about that. But a threat to the church then was Paul's leaving. And the question that I put before you is, does the church exist only when a, this man is there? Or is this really Jesus's church? And G, is Jesus going to care for the church when Paul leaves? And the answer was a resounding yes. Paul leaves. God sends Apollos. OK, your turn. And you go. And that's why Paul says, I planted, but Apollos watered. He is building on the foundation set. And if you go back and read about Apollos, he was Mr. Golden Mouth. He was Mr. Preach the skin off of your Bible. He, his theology was a little off and he had to be pulled to the side and corrected. But brother had preaching and oratorical gifts off the charts. He would refute people and reason with people because he went to the best seminary. He had these gifts by the spirit. And so some people are saying, bro, did you know about Paul? Somebody actually died when he was preaching because he preached too long. We team Apollos, though. Brother can preach. And then other says, we follow Cephas. This is more than likely Peter. 
Because later in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, do we not have a right like all the other apostles, James, the brother of Jesus, and Cephas to take a believing wife with us? When he talks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about Jesus being raised and appearing to the disciples. And then he says, and Cephas, and then to me as a man untimely born, and then to 500 other people. So follow Paul's logic. Why would Paul bring up Cephas three times in the book if the Corinthians didn't know who Cephas was. And more than likely, right, when Paul talks about Jews demand a sign and Greek want wisdom, more than likely in this Corinthian church, it is Greeks. And there are also Jews because the church planted by Paul was right next door to the synagogue. How about that? That's a missionary strategy. Go get next to the synagogue that's Jewish and plant a church. And some of the Jews were probably saying, we're team Peter. Paul was an afterthought. He didn't even travel with Jesus during his three years. Peter is upon the rock. He's going to build his church. Right? Like this is probably their thinking. And so they're like team Peter all day. And then you get to, I mean, the fact that Paul puts them at, or I follow Christ, please don't read that as if they got it right. Read it like they're wearing Christ in name but they're just as sectarian and divisive as the others. And they're the ones probably saying, who needs Peter or Apollos or Paul? Jesus, my shepherd, I don't need no preacher to come pastor me. I got direct access to the Father by the Spirit. Who needs all them fractured, imperfect pastors when you can go to the perfect shepherd? And so what's happening is they are divided over these things. And I know some of us are thinking, is this really a big deal? And I would say yes. Why? First, did you notice that this is the first thing that Paul talks about? If I were writing 1 Corinthians, we're going to talk about prostitution. We're going to talk about suing each other. We're going to talk about all this other stuff that, that comes later in the book. But what Paul does is he says, no. What the first thing I want you to know out the gate after the introduction is your division is most the the most important thing that needs to be addressed. Secondly, there is no change in subject matter until you get to first Corinthians five. And I know you're thinking like, wait a minute. So look at look at Apollos and Paul. If you turn over to chapter three, what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? He's still talking about the divisions in chapter three. You get into chapter four. This is how you ought to view your leaders. In other words, what you see him talking about in chapter one, it goes all the way until you get to chapter five. Thematically. This is a big deal to Paul. It's antithetical to Jesus' prayer that we be one as he and the Father are one. Jesus was not praying for our uniformity. In the Trinity, there is difference. The Father didn't die on the cross for you. The Son did that. The Father chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. The Spirit did not die on the cross for you. The Son did that. 
and the spirit comes from, proceeds from the father and the son to seal the work of the father and the son. And what you have in the Trinity is diversity of persons, diversity of roles. But what you have in the Trinity is union and oneness. And so when Jesus prays for our unity, he isn't praying for uniformity. And so when we break up and fracture, what we are actually telling King Jesus is no. It's also important because the world looks at us and sees us fighting one another, and they think, how can they talk about being reconciled? And they're fighting each other on Twitter and on Facebook. No thank you to their God. It's just talk. And while they're fighting one another, they are not wrestling against the ruler of the world. They're actually on his team. And while they're distancing themselves from fellow Christians wired differently, they are not experiencing the diversity of gifts in the body. This is why it's hard. And you know what, Redeemer? This wasn't just true for Corinth. It's true in the church today. So in 2010, we went to New York and we stayed on West 83rd. And if any of you have been to New York, you also know that that is the same location where Redeemer New York is. And so our plan was to to walk one block and to go hear Tim Keller preach. This is like in 2010. And we were staying at his son's house and his son was in England and his son called. He said, yo, bro, I just want to tell you that dad's going to be on West 83rd. And I'm like, no, duh. That's where he preaches. And he says, nah, you didn't know? I said, no, what? We stopped telling the church where Tim Keller is preaching. I said, wait a minute, why? It's because wherever Tim Keller preached, that's where the saints would go. And so you, you literally, where they had three sites, and the flock would go wherever Tim was preaching. And so if Abe Cho was preaching or Scott Sauls, you would see numbers drop. And wherever Dr. Keller was, that's where people went. And so what Redeemer was doing was pastoring their people through this. We're Team Keller. And what Redeemer says, no, we are going to pastor you so well that we're not going to tell you where he is. It still happens today. And it can happen here at this church. I preach around 70% of the time, and that is by design. And we have a very gifted staff, and we're different. Our stories are different. Our hearts are different. Our gifts are different. Our ways of communicating are different. And here's the thing that can easily happen. I'm Team Brian, or I'm Pastor L, or I'm Team Zach. And I think I speak for both of the men who stand in this pulpit that Jay-Z can teach us a lot here. Jay-Z says, I'm not looking at you rappers, I'm looking past you. When we stand in this pulpit and proclaim the good news of Jesus, don't 
Look at us. Listen for Jesus. And we do it. Well, I don't like these type of songs. Or I like it when Jermaine leads or Akita leads or Renee leads or Arthur leads or Sarah leads or we're singing this kind of music and this and this and this. And what can happen is our preferences can get in the way of the worship of our God. And it ain't just in the pew. It's preachers around here who want a large following, who want you to make much of us, who want to hear the attaboys and the attaboys, and that's a good job, and you brought it, and I'm here to tell you for a preacher, you do not work for the people. We work at the pleasure of King Jesus, and we're to be pleased with his name and his fame, and for us to be recede in the background. We're to be like John the Baptist. He must increase, and it's okay if I decrease. That's the way it's meant to be. I'm not that beautiful, but he is immeasurably beautiful. And so it's not just the people. Preachers can do it. That's the problem. The quickest way to destroy a church is to do this. What's the source of the problem? Now, suppose you went to the doctor and you complained of blurry vision and heart palpitations and, and fatigue, and you're giving her all these symptoms, right? And she says, okay, well, let me take your blood sample. Let me take your blood pressure. And she comes back and tells you, you have hypertension. And you're like me, I'm not medical. I'm like, what's hypertension? Like, tell me, what is that? You have high blood pressure. Okay, what does that mean? My pressure is high. What is that? Okay, well, the pressure of your blood exerting force against your vessels makes your heart have to work harder to pump blood through your body. Okay, and then the doctor will say, well, let me ask you about your family history. And let me ask you about your lifestyle. Do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you exercise? Do you eat a lot of meat? Do you eat vegetables? And all of a sudden, the doctor will come back and tell you, based on your habits and based on your history, the, this is the root, and what you're seeing manifested is hypertension, and what you're feeling is the blurry vision and the heart palpitations. So here's the question. If you want to solve the problem, what do you have to get to? You got to get to the root. What you see happening in Corinth, their divisiveness and their party spirits, please don't think that that is where we have to stop. We have to say, what, what's underneath it? What's causing them to act like this and talk like this and to fight and to divide and to boast? Whenever members begin to divide along pastors and politics and worship, we don't have to guess why. There is a direct correlation, a well-worn path, mountains of evidence that tells us why this happens. It happens because the world is having more sway on us than Christ. And Paul draws a line. He says the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit. And what happens when we begin to behave like the natural world around us is we are being influenced by them. 
And so this is a, these are great books. Uh, I love Ben Witherington. Uh, he has this book, A Week in the Life of Corinth. So if you want to kind of read a made-up book around what it would have been like to spend a week in Corinth, this is a, a, a good one. But I really like his socio-rhetorical commentary, and it's one on First and Second Corinthians, because he deals with not only the text, but also language and, and, and writing styles and structures and what's really happening in Paul's day in Corinth. And here's what he writes. Why were there rivals, rivalry and quarrels in the church? The Corinthians were caught up in a pattern of behavior that characterized the sophists, S-O-P-H-I-S-T-S. Sophists were traveling philosophers and orators who were paid to publicly debate and yield their wisdom on matters related to ethics and sports and politics and education and knowledge and religion and culture. They even made their money from parents who wanted their children to learn at their feet. Dio Chrysostom writes in Corinth, during the time of Diogenes, sophists gathered around Poseidon's temple shouting and reviling one another and their disciples. Their disciples often fought one another. Dio rightly says that when it came to sophists, the definition of their disciples were zealots. Philostratus, I guess I'm saying his name right, confirms an account when the pupils of a sophist became so incensed at the insults being heaped on their teacher that they had the rival orator beaten who actually died. He's like, okay, what did you just read? In Paul's day, philosophers. That's why Paul says, where is the debater of this age in the next chapter? It was popular in Paul's day for debaters and philosophers to travel and to get that bread because you paid them. That's how they made money. They learned and they waxed long and eloquent about everything. And people would just flock and flock and their disciples would get around them. And all of a sudden they would start mudslinging against other sophists because money was at stake. And it, it would get so violent that zealots, that, that the disciples of famous speakers would fight each other and kill each other. And what Withering says that from the language and from the letter that what we see happening is that the Corinthians are taking their cue from the culture. Their, their church is starting to break up because this is how the world and the city around them lives. And so the root to their division and dissension was bringing the ways and the wisdom and the divisiveness of the world into the church. Whenever we see unhealthy, not all division is unhealthy and not all disagreement is unhealthy. But whenever we see unhealthy division, dissension and rivalry in the church, what's happening behind the scenes, under the surface of those who profess faith in Jesus is gluttony. Gluttony of the culture and malnourishment of God's word and the cross. What we do in private and consume in private and give our hearts to in private will show and it will spread like a cancer in the body of Christ. We are all being formed into something 
One author says it's nice to think that each of us is our own island of self-determining type of person we want to become, but that's just not the case. The messages we hear, the words we read, the shows we watch, all of it is shaping us. Drip by drip, our worldviews and beliefs are being formed and they shape the way we think and the actions we take. Therefore, Redeemer, the quickest way to destroy a unified covenant community is to feast on Fox News all day long. It's to feast on NBC all day long. It's to read what they say in the world. It's to breathe the air of the partisan politics and the spirit of our day and just take that in and take that in and take that in. And before long, you bring that in. And that's how you and I, and I'm putting myself in it, and that's how we begin to evaluate and behave in the life of the church. What's the solution? How does Jesus feel about what he sees in Corinth? We don't have to guess. John sees an image of Jesus as one walking between the lampstand, and the lampstands are the churches in the book of Revelation. Look at what Paul says in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul is writing, he's not doing on his own authority. He is appealing to the name and person and heart of King Jesus. Paul is coming in the name of Jesus. Now, remember that word sophist that we used a second ago? The root word for that is Sophia. Sophia is where we get our word, or they would get their word, wisdom. Now, here's a chart that Andre's going to show you. Look at the top of that chart. You can see 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, 4, right? So those are the, those are the and what you see at the bottom are, are, are times that wise or wisdom is used in the entire book. And so pay attention here. Wise or wisdom is used 27 times in the entire book. But answer this question for me. Where does Paul use it the most? In what section? The first four chapters. And what is the first four chapters about? <laughs> it's about their division and their disunity. All right, thank you, Andre. Do y'all see what's happening here? That, that their division and their disunity is actually prompted because they're looking outside of the church for wisdom. They're actually looking outside of the gospel for wisdom. They're looking outside of the gospel for power. And what Paul does while he's talking about their division, he says, you want to know what you really need? You need to see real wisdom and you need to see real power. And you want to know where you find it? You don't find it in the ways of the world. They can't in their wisdom see God. God's wisdom, God's power is in the cross. 
And so the solution to their division is not just try harder. The solution to their division is can you step back and take the same pill that you took when you became a believer? Can this cross loom large? Can your Messiah loom large? Can his purposes loom large again? And so what Paul is doing is actually saying, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The cross is foolish to the world, but to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and the power of God. And so follow with me. I want to walk through verse 17, kind of into the next few verses, but listen to what Paul is saying. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, not like those what you see in Corinth, lest the cross be emptied of its power. The word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to those who us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it has already been written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. God will do something distinctly different and unprecedented. And when that happens, that's true wisdom. Where is the one who is wise by worldly standards? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Who could have imagined this plan of redemption? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? The world by its wisdom and its ways of thinking can't know God. God reveals it through the folly of what we preach. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those of us who are called Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God, and Christ is the wisdom of God. What Paul is saying, instead of looking out there for them, take some time and ponder him. Who would have imagined that God would dwell among us for 30 years? Who would have imagined that he would become human? Who would have imagined that he would raise the dead? Who would have imagined that he would come and do miracles? Who would have imagined that he would see people sitting on trees and know them and where they are and the innermost desires of their hearts? Who would have imagined that he would have children flock to him? Who would have imagined that he would have prophesied that that big old famous temple in Jerusalem would come down and never to be built again? Who would have imagined that people from every nation and tribe and tongue would bow the knee to one Messiah? Who would have imagined that he was peculiar and puzzling, satisfying and sacred? Who would have imagined that we would see holiness breathing and walking? Who would have imagined that God himself would get upon a tree and die a sacrificial death on a cross and that he would be stretched out naked so that passerbys would see and they would never want to commit treason? Who would have imagined that he would go in the ground and die becoming sin for you and I who would have imagined that he would stay there three days like Jonah and be raised from the grave in power who would have imagined that the the dead with the earth would give up their dead who would have imagined that he would be ascended on high who would have imagined that he would transform fishermen and make them fishers of men who would have imagined that people would be headed in the 
service of King Jesus, who would have imagined this great plan where God would take your sin and my sin, past and present and future, and put them upon him, and he would die in our place? Well, Paul is saying, you're looking in the wrong places for power. And you're looking in the wrong places for majesty. And you're looking in the wrong places for wisdom. And you're looking in the wrong places for hope. But if we would just zoom in on Christ, all of a sudden, those folks out there ain't that, ain't that pretty. And they ain't that powerful. And they ain't that unifying. And their kingdoms don't last long. You see what Paul is saying? That the solution is us bowing the knee to Jesus. And we can disagree and still have no divisions because we agree on the main thing, the one thing that matters more than anything else, and it's Jesus and his cross. What will put the divided and broken back in place? That word for unity that you see right there in verse 10. It's from the medical field and from the fishing field. It was used to describe a newborn whose vertebrae were aligned. An ambidextrous athlete who had the same force in both arms. It was used to put a shoulder that had been dislocated back into socket. It was used to describe fishermen after their nets had been broken when they will work on it and mend it back together again. And what Paul is saying, who will straighten the church out? Who will put what is fractured back into socket? Who will mend where there has been tearing and hurt? King Jesus will do it through his cross. And when we see and savor him, we can benefit from Paul without comparing him to Peter. We can benefit from Apollos without comparing him to Paul. We can listen to the cacophony of beautiful diversity because it's all pointing us to the giver of it all, King Jesus. And we get to show the world that out of many, we are one. And we get to expend ourselves instead of fighting against other Christians for loving the world to life. I share this story in our new members class our founding pastor, Mike Campbell, left Redeemer June 21st, 2015. I had to go back and check my Instagram to figure out when he left. And I didn't get installed until February the 14th of 2016. That's almost eight months. For eight months. We had different preachers in this pulpit every week. White, black, flew in, walked in. Some hooped and some were monotone. And they preached from all over God's word. And our elders, some of them deserve checks because they worked on top of their work. But you want to know what happened in that season where we did not have a pastor? Redeemer grew. We grew. 
You know who that is a testament to? It's a testament to King Jesus. And the spirit that he has worked in this church. But we don't follow men, including the man right here. Our allegiance is to Jesus. Our eyes are upon Jesus. And we accept whomever it will that will point us to Jesus. And we are unified. We're unified around that. And that's just not in the past. That's the way it's supposed to be forever. May it be so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless you. We love you. Thank you that you first love us. Thank you that you sanctify us. Father, I pray for those here who are guilty of dividing the church. Would you grant forgiveness both here and uh, in this pulpit and, and our people? Father, I pray that you will loom large, that in Christ is hidden all the treasures and wisdom and power of God. Lord, help us all to bow the knee to him and to savor and to love him. May he increase and we decrease. And Lord, help us to not idolize diversity and diverse gifts, but to receive them humbly through the hand of King Jesus, who is so uh, good to your people. Thank you, Jesus, for being a great king. We love you. Continue to unify us around your cross. Uh, guard us, Lord, in the way of life, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.